Christian Zana, uh, your fellows across College Oxford and Associate Professor of Islamic History at the Faculty of Oriental Studies, University of Oxford. Um, Christian, you were a student at Oxford, now you're a, a don at Oxford. What's it like being a don and not a student? What are the principal differences? I guess I should say I, I never imagined that this was going to come. I mean, I was in Oxford as an MPhil student from 2007 to 2009. Um, and uh, at that time, I was uh, at St. John's College across the street from St. Cross. And uh, in fact, my initial acquaintance with St. Cross came about at that time. Um, I was supervised from my MPhil by a retired fellow named Fritz Zimmermann. Um, whose specialty was Islamic philosophy and whose office was actually just down the hall from my here in the faculty. So although I wasn't officially at St. Cross, um, I did have a connection with it and Fritz would very kindly bring me to lunch and we'd talk and I got to know the college a bit that way. So I didn't feel like a complete stranger when I came back, but nonetheless it was with incredible surprise. I think you know there are a few students uh, who are lucky to find their way back to the universities where they study uh, to work later as faculty, as professors or a don in our case. Um, so it has been a great uh, shock in some ways, but a very, very happy shock, uh, and I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, Fritz was a very, I remember him, he was a very welcoming yes. soul. Yeah, yeah. Fritz, um, Fritz, was, Fritz was a specialist in uh, the translation of ancient Greek philosophy into Arabic, and uh, I was a relative newcomer to the study of the Middle East and Arabic at that time, but I had a background in classical languages, and that's what led me to Fritz. So we spent a year writing an MPhil thesis together on the first political philosopher in the Islamic tradition who lived in the, uh, in the, in the 10th century. And that I discovered him essentially over St. Cross lunches. So it was a very happy experience on both fronts. Um, how, how, is, how is being fellow at St. Cross? I mean, how, how, you know, how does it compare with previous experiences and how, and how do you find it in the present day? Yeah, well, it's been, it's been very, very good. Uh, uh, St. Cross is immediately next to the Oriental Institute, which is where my office is and where this interview is happening. And so I think it's my good fortune to live so close to the college that I'm a member of as a fellow. You know, many of my colleagues are fellows at places like Wolfson and, you know, places much, much further afield, and it's hard to access. So the one thing, I mean, the first and foremost thing that I'm very grateful for is that the college is on my doorstep and it's very easy to pop into lunch and take part in the social life of the college. I mean, my primary daily interface with St. Cross is by going to lunch, um, meeting other fellows, meeting students along the way, and of course the many dinners that happen outside that context. And I love the experience of serving as a faculty advisor. You know, um, I, I have not yet had students of my own who have been advisees in the college. There have been no Islamic historians who've come through St. Cross over the past three years. But I've had historians, I've had students studying literature, and they're all extremely bright, interesting, and I, uh, I love to meet them. Mm, fantastic. Now, can you tell us something about your research and, uh, you know, <clears throat> a bit of the backstory? Um, coming to where you are now? Yeah, so my uh, job title, as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, is Associate Professor of Islamic History. So what the university pays me to do, uh, at least in theory, is to teach more or less the first thousand years of Islamic history. So that's essentially the Near East from late antiquity in the 6th century until the rise of the Ottomans, the conquest of Constantinople in 1453. So that's, my, that's the breadth of my teaching, but my own writing and research is on a period that's slightly narrower than that. Um, I'm mainly interested in, say, the first uh, three or four centuries of Islamic history, so the 600s through roughly the year 1000. Um, and I came to that interest um, originally through a background, as I mentioned, in classical languages. Uh, I had done Latin and Greek at school and then as an undergraduate and uh, was very interested in the Roman Empire. Um, and in the process of studying, I quickly discovered that many of the areas that we think of as the heartlands of Roman civilization, the heartlands of the early church, 
um, are today areas that have Muslim-majority populations, places like Egypt, North Africa, Syria, Palestine, you name it. Um, and so as an undergraduate uh, at Princeton, before I came to Oxford, I got interested in this and I thought to myself, how much changed, uh, how little changed. Um, and so for me, it was really the experience of coming to Oxford that, um, and the chance to study Arabic, to supplement my language study with Arabic that led me to this. And so that whole question of how ancient societies become medieval societies, how Christian societies become uh, Muslim societies, those are still questions that are with me and drive my research. Um, so I'd say that, broadly speaking, most of my writing today deals with uh, the rise of Islam uh, in its late antique, late ancient environment. I'm interested in how uh, Islam is born, um, its relationship to the religions that came before it, the ways in which the existing populations of the Near East in places like Iran, Syria, North Africa, as far west as Spain, slowly convert and become Arabic-speaking and Muslim. Um, I teach over a very, very broad period. I write over a slightly narrower period, uh, but I like it because there's questions that still resonate with us today. You know, we live with the consequences of these events in, um, in so many ways when we look out at the culture, politics, art, history of the modern Middle East. Could you elaborate a little bit on its resonance for the present day with a particular example? Well, this week, the news has been dominated, for instance, by the death of the so-called caliph of the Islamic State, this figure, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, who was killed by the uh, American army on Sunday. And um, this is uh, maybe not the happiest example of the ways in which early Islamic history impinges or helps us understand the present, but it's a very, very good one. It's at our fingertips. Um, the Islamic State, of course, came to power in the year 2014, alleging to resurrect this medieval institution that was common to you know uh, many parts of the Middle East, and uh, that is to say, the caliphate. The caliphate is the political institution. It's the spiritual institution of leadership um, that pops up in Islam in the wake of the Prophet's death. So caliphs combine this spiritual as well as political authority, and uh, the caliphate uh, underwent many transformations in its history, but essentially went into abeyance. Um, uh, after the classical period, uh, lived on in different forms into the modern day. And so when the Islamic State came along and allegedly resurrected this, they were playing with ideas that date all the way back to the 7th and the 8th century. Uh, and a lot of what they allegedly resurrected, they got wrong. There were lots of misinterpretations. Of course, the Islamic State was brutal and, if anything, extremely un-Islamic. But the ideas they were playing with were very much the province of a long-lost world. And it's a world that I study through my research and it's something that I teach to my students. So, you know, it's events like this that help the students see the ways in which the past can help elucidate the present and that what we're studying is not just, you know, material that comes out of dusty books that doesn't relate to the present, but it's very much uh, connected to the world we live in. Mm, absolutely. Very important. Very important, too. The book you had published in 2018, can you tell us, tell us something about that? Yeah, so this was my book based on my PhD thesis, which I wrote at Princeton. Um, the title of the book is Christian Martyrs Under Islam, and the subcolon is uh, Religious Violence and the Making of the Muslim World. So I mentioned just a minute ago that one of the big things I'm interested in is how um, late ancient societies, which at least in many parts of the Near East are predominantly Christian, slowly transform into majority Muslim societies like the ones that we know today when we look out at the Middle East. So this book is very much an effort um, to look at that transformation and the role that violence did or did not play in the process. Um, I don't think it needs reminding to you or any of our listeners that there are many images of Islamic culture as being uh, as hopelessly violent, 
hopelessly intolerant, the relations between Muslims and non-Muslims as being constantly strained. I mean, the actual experience of history is far more nuanced and complex. We certainly have examples of conflict, and I talk about a number of those in the book. But a lot of this violence, a lot of this conflict took place against the backdrop of relations that we might not describe as essentially coexistence in the modern sense of the term, but were certainly peaceable. People got by, they lived side by side, they intermarried. So the book is very much a study of how violence erupts against the backdrop of these uh, everyday relations that we could characterize as being um, something certainly other than violent and tense, and they're focused in particular on the lives of converts to Islam, so Christians who convert to Islam and then go back to Christianity, for which they're killed as apostates, apostasy being a capital offense under Islamic law. Uh, I focus on the lives of Muslims who convert to Christianity, who if they were, you know, if they were discovered and failed to repent, could be killed under the same, under the same laws. I also spoke about the history of apostates, people who ran afoul of the law for in publicly insulting the Prophet Muhammad. So these are events that happened a long, long time ago, but again, they're events that have resonance with the sorts of religious conflicts, sectarian tensions that we read about uh, in the Middle East today. Mm, sounds like a, like a very rich account. Chris, can I, yeah, can I ask you, what's on the horizon for you? So I'm, uh, I'm working on two things right now. Um, one is a, a project which deals with many of these same themes about religious transformation, um, but in a completely different part of the Middle East and dealing with a different set of religious groups. And this is in Iran. The subject is uh, or Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is the uh, ancient state religion of Iran, the state religion of the Persian Empire that's deposed by the Arabs in the 7th century. Um, and much as with the Christians, Zoroastrians continue uh, as a major part of the population in Iran for a long time after the conquest. So I'm, I'm essentially writing and researching their early encounter with Islam, what the process of conversion was like, um, the intellectual debates that this encounter stimulated, things like that. So that's project number one. And project number two is a history of mountainous regions in the medieval Middle East. And I'm particularly interested in mountains as um, sites of revolution and dissident behavior, um, and mountains as areas where you would find uh, non-Muslim communities surviving long after they had, say, disappeared in lowland areas, and also as places that attracted what we might call non-imperial forms of Islam, forms of Islam that were out of step with the politics, the culture, the priorities of imperial capitals like Damascus, Baghdad, etc. So those movements often take root in remote, inaccessible areas, and mountains are the most important example. Can I ask you, what took you to the mountains? Well, I, I'm a lowlander myself. I'm a, I'm a city slicker and was brought up in the suburbs. So I don't have a personal experience in mountains, but I spent um, a great deal of my time in graduate school learning Arabic in Syria and in Lebanon. And anyone who lives in that area knows that it's a landscape that is dominated by mountains and its history is indelibly tied up with its topography, its highland topography. So years of driving around those areas in rental cars and seeing all the interesting change in cultures that you, as you go from one mountain valley to the next, the survival of distinctive dialects of language got me thinking that this is a phenomenon and a, a process, a history that you could tell for medieval Syria. It's a history you could tell for North Africa. It's a history you could tell for the Iranian world and well beyond. So I'm now trying to knit that all together. Christian Sarmat, thank you very much. Thank you, Stanley.